We often think of disruption as this mythical struggle of David and Goliath. The scrappy startups rising up out of nowhere to take down the established players who are as powerful as they are out of touch. Who art thou? David, son of Jesse. David, son of Jesse? The shepherd, David. <laughs> My only god is gold. My only law is Goliath. Defeat Goliath. And I shall not destroy Israel. That's the pivotal scene from director Orson Welles' David and Goliath, the 1960 depiction of the biblical tale. The film portrays Goliath as the brute you would imagine. Goliath was powerful, and he knew it. And his opponent? A shepherd boy with zero battle experience. It was a total joke. But it's not like King Saul was going to step up, so maybe David knew something we didn't. I mean, he did become the king. When someone who shouldn't win actually wins, it messes with the order of things, and it creates this kind of wild uneasiness, like anything could happen, even to us. In business, as in life, people tend to root for the Davids, and I'm not always sure why. Don't get me wrong, I love an underdog story as much as the next guy, but sometimes, I don't know, I think we project this narrative onto disruptors a bit too much. Look, we've made startups sexy. There, I said it. They're rebellious and nonchalant and more committed to solving the problem than solving the business model. The story that entrepreneur types peddle is enticing, at least on the surface. Spend a few years working your ass off, serve loyally under your 24-year-old boss, and somehow survive the slog of a 70-hour work week, all the while subsisting on overpriced food delivery, and your reward? You retire from the game at 30 with untold generational wealth. Or you limp into your 40s with nothing but the sweat equity of your brow. It's downright biblical. But let's be real. We may want David to beat Goliath, but most Davids want to be Goliath. While plucky entrepreneurs try to change who's in power, the power changes them. And things tend to go one of two ways. The Davids get older, put on that gray flannel suit, and sedate themselves with yesterday's glory. Other times, the Davids get drunk on their own power fight dirty, throw their weight around, and turn manipulation into their only competitive advantage, and everyone else better fall in line. Either way, our David risks becoming some version of the giant they once threw stones at, writing the prologue for the next David. But even though our culture practically trains us to root for the underdog, it doesn't mean we should. Here's the thing. Goliath's fall would look a lot different if it's your empire that falls with him. More bad news for workers at the GM plant here in Oshawa. 1,200 people were laid HP off yesterday. announcing plans to cut as many as 9,000 jobs. Sears, more than 100 locations, now all of them gone. It's been a tough couple of weeks for the digital news industry. More than 1,000 workers, many of them reporters, have lost their jobs at companies like BuzzFeed, HuffPost, and Vice. As much as we'd like to hate 
the man, whether it's BP, KPMG, or the big G himself, there are consequences to sticking it to him. So here's my unpopular opinion. There's nothing wrong with a little J-O-B. Goliaths of the world pay our bills. They didn't just start. They took risks, went public, and made a lot of money for a lot of people. They stormed the castle, redid the bathrooms, and raised their logo up the flagpole. And now, years later, you get to benefit from their risk. Whether they've been in power for two years or 200, how can Goliaths keep the spirit of David alive? And how do they disrupt themselves before someone does it for them? Today, we're looking at the internal coup, the art of the pivot. We're taking notes from the leaders who broke ranks to ignite the coup from within the castle walls. I'm your host, Ron Tight, and this is The Internal Coup. is it costing you an online ad spend to get that person? Our, our cost per acquisition yeah. is $10. Holy smokes. So we, we know good. we can scale. No, that's so good. Like, that's the type of online... This is my friend Michelle Romano. She's an entrepreneur, she's an investor, and she's a dragon on Dragon's Den. Before her 33rd birthday, Michelle had already started five companies, and now she's the co-founder of ClearBank, venture capital firm that gave entrepreneurs more than $100 million in funding in 2018. Disruptors like Michelle aren't only leading the charge against individual companies or, or even industries, they're changing the entire economy. The lifespan of major companies is shrinking, according to a 2018 study by Inesida Growth Strategy Consulting Firm. They looked at the time companies spent on the S&P 500 and how that's changed over the last few decades. For a company going public in 1965, the average tenure on the index was 33 years. By 2030, it's expected to be at 15. Look, it's not a simple trend with fluctuations over time, but what's striking is that companies' reigns are being steadily reined in. In other words, if it ain't broke, well, look closer. It's probably breaking. Here's Michelle. That seems like significant, but what's more significant is 20 years means that in our careers, we'll probably be disrupted at least once or twice. And I think you're starting to see that people are taking this a little bit more seriously because it's going to happen to them. And it's scrappy newcomers like Michelle who have an intuition for filling gaps in the market. As someone who's been successful across industries, she's got a thing or two to teach Goliaths of the world about pulling off an internal coup. I mean, my career has been the most unlinear thing in the world, right? Yeah. Like, to be clear, I went from engineering school to coffee shop to fishmonger to e-commerce site to coupon queen yeah. to, you know, Dragon's Den and media to on the board of a ski resort to building a financial <laughs> service company to the, you know, the freshly borders of the restaurant. Like, yeah. that is a pretty wide range of what feels like sometimes uncorrelated experience. And even when I started you know, ClearBank, which is clearly in financial services, you know, there were moments where I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And everyone here is so deep in this knowledge and 
you know, I'm Googling what basic acronyms mean that I should know what's going on in this meeting, but I don't. Michelle's atypical career trajectory is no surprise. As it turns out, rewriting the rules is something that kind of runs in the family. So when I was a kid, you know, my dad, who worked for a corporation his whole life. Yeah. Um, he's also a pilot. He took air cadets in school. So he learned how to fly a plane. And great scientists would sit me down on the airplane and be like, Michelle, this is what's happening. There's, you know, one moving part in, in this jet engine and blah, blah, blah. He was obsessed with it. And then he would do his work on the plane. And as the plane's landing, the flight attendants always come by and they're like, you know, put up your tray tables, put up your tray tables. And every single time my dad would put up his tray table. And then as soon as the flight attendant walked by, he'd put down his tray table and immediately resume what he was doing. And I just remember him looking at me and I must've been eight years old. And he goes, you never have to listen to stupid rules. He goes, if this plane is going down, this tray table isn't going to make any difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's that attitude, which is that yeah. if the rule is stupid, I don't need to listen to it. And I can totally reevaluate why something is being done. What makes a successful entrepreneur is not so much the method, but the mindset. Not to sound cliche, but it's yeah. like learning disruption. Mm -hmm. And it's being irreverent to a set of rules that everyone believes is true. So I've always believed that the most natural entrepreneurs as kids were class clowns. Yeah. And and I've seen this time and time and again. Were and you a class clown? No, I wasn't a class clown. I freaking <laughs> wish I was a class clown. I, I wasn't I was a comedian for 20 years. I became, People always expected me to be a class clown. I was like, nah, I wasn't really. I know I became funnier way later in life. But <laughs> class clowns have something right. They're usually more clever than the teacher, and they usually don't care about the rules. And they're like, someone, this teacher made this rule up, and I don't need to follow it. And I think that is critical for how startups look at the world, because every single system that we are a part of today, or like 90% of the systems, let's call it, are designed by humans, and they were designed in a different era by humans for an enormous number of reasons that are almost impossible to understand. Refusing mandated safety instructions and talking back to teach, well, that's one thing. But what does this mindset look like in business? Back in 2011, Michelle got into the e-commerce space and within a few years created a mobile couponing app called SnapSaves from the ground up. She noticed that the market for grocery discounting services was ripe for change. And retailers needed a new way to reach their customers beyond paper coupons. Meanwhile, that gap in the market was there for everybody to see. The number in the U.S. was sending a hundred billion paper coupons to American households a year. I mean, you talk about fraud, fraud by the retailers, like TV yeah. shows on how to, how to work the system. Like it was such an archaic model, zero data. There couldn't right. possibly yeah, 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 any yeah, yeah, data yeah, yeah, in, right. in, you know, the way that they collected these was in garbage bags and sending them and people would count them and crazy. You know, we came in and we said, look, we think that we can build something better than this. And so the vision was, how do we help consumers save money on groceries? And how do we help brands better communicate with their customers? Committing to solve the problems the establishment can't or won't. It's what drives nearly every coup. But figuring out how to actually do it better, that takes some troubleshooting. So the first thing that we tried to build was a print-at-home website where people could print coupons, and we thought this was way better. And that ended up being, you know, not a very good idea for a bunch of different reasons that we saw. And so we said, okay, why don't we try one of these, like, beauty subscription boxes where every month you get a sample of 12 products and the customer orders it and shows up to people's home. And I always say that that experiment ended with 50,000 units of self-tanner in our office. <laughs> and so 
The third thing we tried was very different. We built an app on the app. You would open it up and it was a list of discounts that were available at any retailer. And then to redeem that, you would just take a photo of your receipt. And today this seems so obvious because we take photos of receipts. We take photos of, you know, pages and books we like. But in 2012, I remember sitting there in my office being like, is anyone actually going to do this? Or is this just too weird? Yeah. And, you know, the long story short is that was the thing that worked. Michelle's boldness paid off. Like many disruptors, her business was bought up by their biggest competitor when Groupon acquired Snap Saves in 2014 for an undisclosed sum. And the secret, I think, a little bit is, you know, having one vision, but being very flexible on how that can be executed. You know, part of this experimentation, part of the pivot is you get it wrong the first couple of times. I mean, as a startup, things go wrong 80% of the time. I say it's why it's such a hard career, right? Because 80% of the time you're dealing with failure. And imagine if you went to your tax accountant and they were like, 80% of the time I'm going to file your taxes, but they'll be wrong. Or like the brain surgeon's like, well, we're going in, but we got a 20% shot here. Yeah. Like, those are really scary. And while 80% of things might go wrong for Michelle, the failure rate for companies is actually worse. In 2015, Forbes reported that a whopping 90% of startups go belly up. And with such steep odds, Michelle thinks that above all, if you want to win, you need to be more committed to the process than the outcome, even if that means getting it wrong a lot. Look, it's, it's really hard to be a disruptor. It's a lonely path where you got to do your own series of experiments and pivots to really get to something that is going to be truly disruptive to an industry. Regardless of if it's a new CEO or a new startup team, you have to run the experiment. And yeah. You have to give that experiment the best shot you can. And while sometimes you have to push through, the tricky part is you also need to know when to call it quits, which only gets harder as the company gets bigger. The off-ramp to the pivot is littered with giant, rusted-out companies who didn't take the turn fast enough. Again, remember, Blockbuster offered to buy Netflix, mm -hmm. and they said no. And they said no. Yeah, or Netflix offered to yeah, sell yeah. to After, Blockbuster. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And it makes sense that Michelle got that backwards. You'd think Blockbuster would have seen the value of acquiring their innovative young competitor. But yeah, they didn't. But look, in fairness to Blockbuster, let's not forget that when Netflix was courting them, they weren't the multi-billion dollar streaming giant they are today. They were mailing DVDs to your doorstep. Big whoop. Acquiring them could have just as easily been another wrong turn on the way to Blockbuster's demise. But still, all this raises the question, what really separates the Netflixes from the Blockbusters? Look, pivoting is one thing for an entrepreneur with a staff of five friends, but it's something else entirely for a major global franchise still riding yesterday's wave. I mean, imagine being an executive leader on the S&P 500 with all the power that entails and everything to lose, from your own reputation to the paychecks of hundreds or even thousands. There's so much more that can go wrong. So we have a proper dilemma here. The stakes are so high that any change could, in theory, be catastrophic. But doing nothing new, that's no less risky. So how can the established players move fast and break things without breaking everything? To find out, I got in touch with Bill Taylor. Bill's the co-founder of Fast Company, which he sold six years after launching it. 
So he's had a front row seat to countless innovations, reinventions, and disruptions over the last 25 years. In Bill's most recent book called Simply Brilliant, he turned his attention to what disruption looks like within the legacy organizations of established industries. And the most striking internal disruption he wrote about happened inside one of North America's biggest pizza brands. In 2008, Domino's was celebrating its 50th anniversary. It was, you know, in the world of national pizza delivery, kind of the ultimate disruptor, the first one in. They were an early adopter of the internet with the company launching a website in 1996. Their patented heat delivery bags became a unique selling point. But, within, you know, by 50 years later, it kind of run out of gas. Domino's had worked hard to become America's number one choice for delivery. And for half a century, they definitely, well, they were some people's first choice. But on its 50th birthday, the company received one hell of a present. Patrick Doyle, the CEO of Domino's Pizza, who has unleashed in the last 10 years one of the most staggering and impressive, if you want to call it an internal coup, that's fine, but sort of top-to-bottom transformations of an incumbent organization. By the time Patrick would leave the company in 2018, Domino's would be known for having executed one of the greatest internal coups of the last decade. So when he took over, the stock was down to $8.50 a share. It's now somewhere north of $300 a share. Domino's Pizza has doubled the performance of Google stock in the last 10 years under Patrick's tenure. It's, it's one of the great, and it's all digital-driven transformation. But as impressive as the accomplishments were, how did Patrick reverse course? Because let's get one thing straight. When he took over, basically, the food was just absolutely inedible. You know, you could be a 21-year-old college kid, and if you're drunk enough or high enough, you might still want to order, but nobody enjoyed eating a Domino's pizza at that point. In 2009, Domino's did something very risky. They acknowledged that they needed to reinvent themselves and they needed their customers to know they meant it. He convened focus groups with customers eating the food and then talking about it, saying, oh my God, this sauce tastes like ketchup in this. Pizza, where's the love? <laughs> How hard? Bread, sauce, cheese, fresh ingredients. Doesn't feel like there's much love in Domino's pizza. Domino's pizza crust to me is like cardboard. Is it hard to watch this stuff? Yeah. yeah, it's hard to watch. I hear what some folks are saying about our stuff. Oh, this one's bad. Worst excuse for pizza I've ever had. Totally void of flavor. In their now iconic ad campaign, The Turnaround, Patrick and the rest of the C-suite at Domino's admitted on camera that the pizza, their, their core product, sucked. He would come on and say, you're right, we've heard you, the food isn't where it needs to be, the delivery system isn't where it needs to be. We're going to fix all this. Give us some time. I, as the new CEO, promise we will fix it. You can either use negative comments to get you down, or you can use them to excite you and energize your process of making a better pizza. We did the latter. Here's the thing. As much as people like to say they can handle criticism, being faced with harsh feedback in front of an audience of millions, well, that's Brene Brown-level vulnerability. And really, it was a big deal. 
because it's still true that the people in charge, who are still disproportionately men, are taught that they can't show any sign of uncertainty or weakness. It could be bad for morale, but worse, it could be bad for your reputation. I mean, if your team can sense you're unsure about the strength or direction of the operation you're in charge of, how can they trust you to lead them? But that raw honesty and emotion is exactly what drew so many people in. And thankfully, Patrick could back up their redemption story with the radical changes they needed. And key to that was getting everybody on board because making better pizza meant spending more dough. Here's Patrick speaking about this in a 2014 interview with Success Magazine. You know, the, the tougher one was our franchisees. And to this day, it's the group that I give the most credit to because, you know, this is their livelihood. And, you know, we're gonna go out and completely change the recipe and we're gonna tell our customers that the old one wasn't all that good. And so getting them on board and excited about this change was the most important step. So we set up a, a series of, of meetings around the country. We got all of our franchisees uh, and showed them the new pizza and explained, you know, that yes, this new pizza actually costs more to make than the old one. And, uh, and at the end of each of those days, um, you know, we said, uh, show of hands, um, who would make this change? And out of a thousand franchisees, I think we had 12 or 13 say they would prefer to stay uh, with the old pizza. But the most vital thing that Patrick did was challenge the organization's idea of itself. He's very clear to everybody. We are a technology company. We're not a pizza company. It was no longer just about what they were making. It was about how they got it to you. They're based in Ann Arbor. They got about a thousand people working headquarters in, our, in Ann Arbor. Today, more than 500 of those thousand are in big data, analytics, app development. And once he built his tech team, they got to work trying out a number of ideas to see what stuck. This included their iconic pizza tracker that showed online and mobile customers exactly what stage their pizza was at before arriving at their door. There was also the custom delivery car with a built-in warming oven for 80 pizzas. While not every idea was a hit, they did convey a fun-loving edge. You know, you can text uh, an emoji of a, a pepperoni pizza and the pepperoni pizza will show up 20 minutes later. You can tweet an emoji. If you're a tweet an emoji of a mushroom pizza, you get a mushroom pizza. And Bill says that culture of bold ideas paid off with around 65% of business happening over the app. Sure, Patrick could have innovated by just making a new pizza sauce. But thankfully, that's not what happened. Here's how Bill saw Patrick's approach. I think there were a certain number of key ingredients. So first one was just a bracing dose of intellectual honesty, both to the outside marketplace and then to the internal organization. And it wasn't just bracing, it was... Creating a sense of urgency and excitement and what the great management and leadership thinker John Gardner, the great Stanford professor, talks about as tough-minded optimism. Let's break down what he means. So optimism in the sense that a deep set of convictions, a deep set of beliefs that the point of the exercise is to make the future better than the present. Rather than pushing people towards change, creating an end state that pulls them there on its own. But you got to have that with the tough-minded part, kind of a thick skin, a kind of a, 
ability to handle the reversals and setbacks and heartaches that come with the work of change so that people understand that most of the stuff we try is not going to work because that's just the way of the world that we have to kind of steal our resolve and toughen ourselves up because that's the way you make progress. So thick-skinned ambition and? The second thing he did was really just embrace, encourage, celebrate a culture of experimentation. He was very clear that whatever transformations were going to come to Domino's, there was not going to be one blinding flash of insight that was going to change everything. It's going to be a lot of small initiatives that turned out to be a bigger deal than we thought. But the experimentation wasn't just about what he initiated. It was as much about looking for what was already happening. When you're a franchise organization like that all around the world, people are doing interesting things in Australia or in England that if you're a CEO looking across the landscape for great ideas, you see them, you shine a light on them, you spread them around and all that. As someone who studied dozens of legacy companies like Domino's, what stuck with Bill is this. The ones that last and overcome disruption understand that they need to look at their entire operation. There is a total connection in the great organizations I've seen between what you're trying to achieve in the marketplace and how you're building the workplace. And this is not branding and culture. Those two things are inextricably bound. You cannot make claims to your customers that bear no connection to the values and the commitments that your colleagues are making to one another. And so the way I think about it is the best organizations I know work as distinctively as they hope to compete. But even when you look at the whole company, that's an entire ecosystem of humans you're trying to change. To really turn that ship, it takes time. Two of the things I've learned in the last 25 years is this kind of deep-seated, meaningful change always takes much longer than anybody expects. And a big piece of internal disruption, internal coups, is actually intellectual consistency. Stay at it. Say the same things you know, now that you were saying three years ago to give people the confidence and the courage of their convictions, if you will, to keep at the game. This is what separates bold structural changes from simply chasing the flavor of the month. A flashy innovation might give you a quick fix or an expanded market, but an internal coup, a pivot, it's an investment in finding a whole new direction. Look, I've been working with big brands for a long time and patience and consistency for the long haul, that doesn't exactly sound like a lot of companies I know. Come on, how many times have we seen companies or governments for that matter launch innovation labs or R&D hubs or, I don't know, idea derbies or whatever they're calling them now? Here's an example. When I was at Havas earlier in my career as a copywriter, I worked with a brilliant team on a campaign that had the president of Xerox Canada look directly into the camera and say, the last thing I want to do is sell you another copier. The first thing I want to do is save you money. And a hat tip to Mary Secord on that one. The good thing is the president truly believed it. The bad news? The first thing many salespeople wanted to do was sell the damn copiers. It was cooked up in the boardroom of our agency. That doesn't mean Xerox employees didn't want to save their clients money, but their entire training put product 
before purpose. They were being compensated to sell copiers. It is much harder to do a pivot than it is to talk about one. That is where tough-minded optimism comes in. It's funny, we think capitalism is so Darwinian and so cruel, and yet there are so many utterly bland, forgettable, mediocre companies that have been around for a hundred years. They buy ideas and they they shop for uh, projects for change the way we shop for groceries. And it just doesn't work. You lurch from one fad to the next and people inside the organization basically learn to duck and cover. Here we go again. This will be out in six months and then we'll go on to the next thing. Domino's turnaround proves that established organizations are capable of the internal coup. And yet, we see giants of equal, if not smaller size and experience, fall instead of pivot all the time. So what's the difference between the leaders who want the transformation to be true and the leaders who make it true? Last year, look, I had it figured out. I was at the annual Coca-Cola CMO Summit with a talk that riffed on the famous poem and song by Gil Scott Heron. The revolution will not be televised. Basically, I was saying, it's not like Andy and Casper sent Sears and Sleep Country a memo. We weren't warned that disruption was coming, but it's here now. So what are we going to do about it? Hold for applause. Graciously take questions. And then this guy named Peter Sheehan took the stage. And he pretty much contradicts my entire talk. And I loved it. In 18 years of doing this work, we have never ever encountered a company or an industry that was disrupted by a trend that nobody already knew was happening. Peter spoke about his recent work with a snack food company. Their largest grocery retailer, Peter said, had just lost 35% of their market value in 45 days. This was following Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. So he spoke with the retailer's executive team, analyzing trends and changes to figure out how they could recover. And at the end of the day, I pulled aside the CMO and I said, what is your conclusion for the day? She said, my conclusion is we can't be held responsible because we never saw it coming. I was like, really? That was your conclusion to the day? We didn't see it coming. I gave Peter a call to understand why this was such a record scratch for him. To pretend that they didn't see um, a large online retailer like Amazon becoming a legitimate threat in the grocery and particularly the fresh elements of that business is obviously inaccurate. I would say preposterous. I think they absolutely saw it coming. They just chose to believe it wouldn't happen or preferred to hope it wouldn't happen too soon. And if you're making a couple of million dollars a year working for a big retailer, you should be able to figure it out. But we see that yeah, same yeah. trend in, in every context. It's not just in industries that are being disrupted by technology. I see it with CEOs of quite predictable industries as well, where they know exactly what the play is. They know how the market's changing. They know where they need to position their organization. They just don't want to take ownership of doing it. And Peter says that reluctancy has a lot to do with executive turnover. And with the average tenure of a CMO, for instance, being between two and three years in most public companies, it doesn't surprise me that many of them just hold on and hope it doesn't happen during their tenure. And so I just don't subscribe to the fact that we're not aware of what's changing. 
To put it bluntly, Peter's a professional bullshit detector. His clientele are leaders of some of the largest publicly listed corporations. And he cuts through the noise with a no-nonsense version of what Bill Taylor called tough-minded optimism. It's hard to do things differently? Yeah, of course it is. Something's in your way? Work around it. You have all the resources. Use them. When you are as large as some of those companies, they don't have a capital issue. Now, you could argue the normalization of 90-day reporting cycles, the demands of Wall Street, etc., all make that sure. more challenging to pull off. I'm not denying that. But we call it exoneration by narrative. Humans are incredibly capable of finding evidence to support a story they're telling themselves that allows them to not take action that they're afraid to take. I mean, we do this in our individual lives. We do it when it relates to our exercise. We use it to justify our poor parenting. It's in every context of our lives that humans do this, and CEOs are no different, right? And so generally the narratives start long before the failure begins. And that's where Peter's work starts. It only takes four or five penetrating questions for a CEO to come to the realization that they didn't hold the nerve long enough, they didn't do an effective enough job of, of influencing the board and the investment community, they used the wrong metrics to evaluate their success and they killed the deal too quickly, they reverted to safe measures like paying $2 million for the consulting company to give you a binder on the shelf that justified your action or inaction. Like, do you know what I mean? The best companies, says Peter, don't go looking for easy answers to complex problems. And they know it's going to be risky. Whether a team underwent a pivot or opted for the $2 million band-aid, Peter says... The difference was not the strategy. The difference was the leadership within that organization. And so every one of them had to ask themselves really difficult personal questions. Like, do I want to ante up again here? Do I want to take this much risk? Am I prepared to put my professional reputation on the line? I think that's primarily a human journey first and an organizational one second. And I think the sooner we realize that, the less time and money we will waste doing all these insane amounts of external market analysis. I mean, this stuff is not working. And it's not working because you kept the same leaders with the same beliefs and the same behaviors. Companies that win aren't smarter, they're braver. Usually it comes down to the appetite of the CEO, the CFO, and the presidents of the lines of business as to whether they want to transform or not. Companies don't pivot, leaders do. And once a leader can accept that they're resisting change, that's when the real work begins. Because while they've committed to facing risk, personal risk, that doesn't mean the rest of the company has. And you may think you've sold them on the idea because when you bring it up, everyone nods their head, everyone's totally in agreement with the strategy, they really believe the organization needs to change. They have absolutely no intention of changing themselves, right? See, we like the idea of a lot of things, change especially. But, I mean, how are those New Year's resolutions? Are they still going strong? Yeah? So if leaders want to get past the idea, Peter says they'll need to create alignment. Alignment occurs when people invest in new ways, make decisions in new ways that are in the direction of a clearly defined aspiration. You can pivot an organization, but if you don't do the alignment work of incentives and structures and systems and processes, et cetera, then eventually your vision's pulling in one way, but all of your structure and systems and processes are pushing in the old way. Everyone's working really, really hard to maintain what they've got. They need to stop working hard to maintain what they've got and do the hard work of creating the new. And that is a process of rebuilding those systems and rebuilding how you do client relationships and insert whatever happens here. 
You're asking people to do a lot of work that they didn't think that they would have to do. And here's the thing, just one small caveat, um, this maybe won't work and maybe it'll blow up in our faces, okay? Mm-hmm. Go team! And while it's grueling, Peter says most companies are actually quite good at this. It's amazing to watch a big enterprise rally the troops and get moving when times are really tough, partly because it excuses a dictatorship-based approach of command and control. Much harder to do influence and an internal sense of entrepreneurialism and risk-taking in pursuit of an ambitious future that's hard to define, meaning you don't have an enemy. And from a storytelling standpoint, it makes sense. That fear of impending defeat at the hands of a bad guy, your Goliath, if you will, is inspiring as hell. I mean, do I need to play you the Rocky theme? It's stuck in your head now, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. But when you don't have that ready-made soundtrack to queue up, convincing people to hit the reset button gets a little harder. Peter? In the absence Mm -hmm. of that externally created tension, you have to create it yourself. And it comes from ambition. You'd think that most C-suites run on coffee and ambition, but Peter sees executive paralysis every single day. I think what happens is they lose a sense of agency in a way. They find themselves in a position, the complexity of the challenges they face are bigger than any one individual can deal with. They don't generally have teams. And so what generally happens is they, they, they start to feel like they've lost some control over what's happening. And it's just easier not to rock the boat a little bit. I mean, you know, running a billion dollar company, that may not be relatable to most of us, but the anxiety that comes with potentially failing to solve a high stakes problem, that's the great equalizer. Ultimately, Peter says you've got to act on the things you already know and ditch the indulgent story of all that you don't. Peter brings up something he heard a large e-commerce CEO say in response to a question on disruption. He said, we just ask ourselves, where's the customer going and how do we beat them there? That question gives birth to all sorts of ambition because you can sit back and identify those trends we talked about that quote unquote will be televised. I mean, like we know what they are. We've got leading indicators. We can build our own scenarios. They're hidden in plain sight, right? You could use those to get a pretty good sense of where the market's going. You could look at parallel industries, what's happening there. You look at converging technology and then step back and go, where's my customer going? You'll know an answer and it'll be a bloody exciting opportunity if you want to go and solve the problems that they're going to find there. I think a lot of us, we can see where the customer's going, but we don't have a CEO like Patrick to clear the runway. Well, what then? That mindset Peter's talking about, it's not just for the CEOs and high-powered executives. Because no matter what your pay grade, Peter thinks the first steps to get started look pretty similar. Pick the thing you're passionate about. Find two or three people that are interested. Look at a compartmentalized way where you can, a small intelligent bet you can take to compartmentalize the risks and do it. And stop telling yourself a story that you can't. And guess what? Your influence will grow the more you do with the small patch of responsibility that you've got. I think the reason many of us return to this tale of David and Goliath is because it's not just a story of an unlikely hero. It's also about the appointed leader who opted out of the fight. See, before we collectively turned David into the prototypical underdog, the theme of the story was King Saul's unfitness to rule. 
As a shepherd boy, David had learned to fend off predators from his flock with stones and a slingshot. Meanwhile, King Saul had gained power fighting honorably for their people. But when it came time to face Goliath, King Saul, despite his stature and skill, was too scared, and that's how David found his shot. David's coup didn't begin as a hero hitting a behemoth with a silver bullet between the eyes. It started with target practice. You take one bet. If it's too big, you take a smaller one. And if you lose that bet enough times, small enough, in the right direction, then the results of all those failed experiments will help you eventually win. That's how dynasties are built. And when you stop taking those bets, like Saul did, well, that's how they fall apart. The challenges we face do feel impossible, and the rules surrounding us make them even harder to overcome. But the odd thing is, a lot of people at the top, standing in your way, seem to believe that too. See, the world may be full of Goliaths, but every one of us feels like we're the one facing them. Which is liberating, I think. And so it is with disruption. It's not you versus the big guys. It's you versus yourself. This episode of The Coup was written and produced by Chris Connolly and Ali Graham and mixed by Chandra Bullockon for Church and State Podcasts. Original theme music is by the great Jim Guthrie and additional music is by the Blue Dot Sessions and Artlist. And I'm your host and executive producer, Ron Tite. And if you're enjoying the series, please tell your friends about it. Send them an episode. Tell them an interesting fact. Bribe them. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of The Coup. Until then, thanks for listening. Two, three.